You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feasts of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to bless us, bless our slow minds and our slow hearts, bless our our faith, O Father, by strengthening it. Father, we pray that we would not only come to discover the meaning of these words, but Father, that you would also work in our hearts to align our hearts and our lives with the truths of these words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mark 1.15, Jesus famously says that the time is now fulfilled. Um, the time is, is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, we know that verse right at the very beginning of Mark's gospel. And we could ask a question about that. We could say, well, what exactly is this kingdom like? And we can say, well, the kingdom has come because the king is here. But what is this kingdom like? And when we ask that question, uh, we already know that many verses in the Gospels are indeed dedicated to answering that question. How many times do we hear Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is like or the kingdom of God uh, is like? We find those uh, passages all over the New Testament, don't we? All over the Gospels especially. And we might even uh, ask something that's even a little more specific in that. What are the occupants of this kingdom like? Or we could put it this way. What are the people who are in this kingdom supposed to be like? 
And uh, that question right there is a question that we're going to entertain this morning because our text has so much to say uh, about that question. In fact, I don't mind sharing with you the title of this message right from the start. Think about this, word, think about this title for a moment, The Community Jesus Creates. The community that Jesus creates. What kind of community is it that Jesus creates through his gospel? Now, last week we were we began to plow through this text really under the heading of three words, and I don't expect you to remember those words. Sometimes it's hard for me. I, I write these sermons, and if you ask me what I preached three weeks ago, I'd probably have a difficult time... <laughs> telling you part of the reasons I have to get rid of all that stuff out of my head in order to put new stuff in. There's just not enough memory there uh, for everything to fit. So, uh, But at any rate, all kidding aside, you remember love. We looked at the, we, you know, I'd asked you last week at the very beginning of the message to put, you know, hang love up in your mind, hang sovereignty up in your mind, hang humility up in your mind. And that may jar our memory once we have those things. Uh, yeah, okay, we get it. Christ's love, Christ's sovereignty, Christ's humility. And that's where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from the, the first few verses of our story. We're told in, in uh, John 13, verse 1, that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, notice, what, notice what's said next. Having loved his own who were in the world. See, this idea of Jesus loving his own. And we, we could say that the whole Bible is about the love of God through Christ. We could say that. Uh, and we could say the whole Gospel of John is about the love of God through Christ. But we can especially say that uh, of chapters 13 and, and following uh, in John's Gospel. The love of Christ is so on display in our text and will be as Jesus works through the rest of what we have called the passion of Christ, if you will, these last few days of this holy week uh, that we are now studying. We're told that Jesus has loved them even to the end, the last part of verse 1. He has loved them to the uttermost. Now, now, while this is going along, we see the sinister exploits of Judas Iscariot. Uh, here he is. He's carrying out his satanic uh, efforts to betray Jesus. But in verse 3, we see Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. If you recall last week, I made mention that some see here kind of a prologue of sorts. Um, or a second introduction, if you will, an introduction within um, John's gospel. You know, we have the pro, what we call the prologue at the beginning of John's gospel or the introduction at the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And that is introducing the book, if you will. And some have pointed out here that in verse 3 of chapter 13, it's almost like we have another one. If you look at it again, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. You can kind of see there's a, I think there's a lot to be said about that, that there's another prologue here uh, setting up this second half, if you will, of John's gospel. But we had spent some time on this phrase, namely that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now, what is that phrase communicating? That phrase is communicating a statement of absolute authority. When Jesus says, all things have been given into my hands, what's he saying? There's nothing accepted. 
It's his sovereignty, very clearly. So we, we see his love is in view. We see his sovereignty is in view. And we could bask in that just for a moment. Uh, it's not the point this morning. It was the point of last week. But let's bask in it just for a moment. The one who loves us all the way to the uttermost is also the one who is sovereign over all things. You know, in seminary, we used to say, that'll preach. Why will that preach? Because it so touches our hearts, doesn't it? The one who is sovereign, sovereign over everything, has made you the object of his love. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Most of the time, sovereigns don't even know who we are. But this sovereign knows you perfectly, and you are the object of his love. How incredible is that? And we would like to stay parked right there, wouldn't we? But let's, let's move on. Uh, we see his love. We see his sovereignty. And then in verse 4, we see his humility. What's he doing? He rises from supper. He lays aside his outer garments. He takes a towel, ties it around his waist. Then he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And we talked about that last week. We talked about how lowly of a service this was. This was something that was reserved, generally speaking, only for slaves. And in fact, we went back to the beginning of John's gospel where we find John the Baptist. And he's attempting to try to describe the great gulf that's between his own glory and the glory of Christ. And how does he do it? How does he illustrate that? He says, listen, there's one in your midst who you do not know whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to untie. And what is John doing? John's making a reference to this lowly service, if you will. Uh, it was well known. This was not uh, something that people would be asked to do. If we were common servants in a household, we wouldn't be asked to do this. This was something that was reserved only for the very lowest. And what do we find Jesus doing? Taking this service upon himself in verses 4 and 5. And you can almost, you can almost imagine being there, being in this room, and you see Jesus going up to the, pouring the water into the basin, you know, taking off his outer garments, putting the towel around his waist, grabbing the basin, and begin proceeding. You know, the folks are laying kind of on their side. They didn't sit at a table kind of like we do today, but they're, they're laying down kind of on their side with their, with, with their feet stretched out. And here Jesus comes along and begins to wash their feet. You can only imagine uh, the tension, if you will, in the room. Like, what is he doing? Could you imagine how uncomfortable that would make you? And, of course, as Jesus gets to Simon, we don't know if Simon was first or he was third or what doesn't say, uh, but what we do know is as Jesus comes to Simon Peter, he says, verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, we can understand that. And Jesus very plainly says, listen, you don't get it right now, but you're going to get it soon. You know, he says, what I'm doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. And then in verse 8, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Now, we read that last week, but we didn't say very much about that, and that's where I want to pick up uh, this morning. There's a lot going on in Peter's objections. There's a lot here for us to see. That's why I wanted to split this in half. Um, and Peter's objection, I think at the start, let's just say, let's talk about it positively. I mean, why is Peter objection? Peter, Peter loves Jesus. You know, let's not forget that. Peter loves Jesus. He lo he's left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus has been the center of his life for the last 
two and a half to three and a half years. You remember last week we spent a little time trying to determine how long the earthly ministry of Jesus was. And we said on the, on the inside it's about two and a half years. On the outside it's about three and a half years. And that's why you often find it being just rounded off to three years. For the last three years, uh, Peter's life is centered on Jesus, hasn't it? And he loves Jesus. And if you turn back with me, um, just another review. It's a good opportunity to review. Back to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, people are trying to get to Jesus. They're so, they're so determined to get to Jesus that they actually get in boats and cross all the way across the Sea of Galilee to get to him. And when they get to him, Jesus turns up the teaching. He turns up the teaching so much that when you get to verse 60, many of the disciples who are hearing it, they're saying, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. Let us never forget that. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And verse 65, then, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You know, before I go any further, verse 66 is a verse I like to look at uh, often. And I, I recommend if you're actively sharing your faith and reaching out to people, look at this verse often because you will begin to experience, if you haven't already, where people kind of quit returning your text messages. Has anybody experienced that? Um, you're reaching out to people and, and you reach a point where, okay, you can text them all day, but they don't text you back. And it's easy to be thinking, it's easy to take that personally, but when you look at verse 66, it app, they're not texting Jesus back. There's, they're, just, they're not returning his phone calls. Um, they're turning away. They're no longer walking with him. And what does Jesus do in verse 67? He says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And look how Peter answers. And Peter's speaking for the rest because he uses the plural. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? He doesn't say to whom shall I go. He says to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? And here you see his commitment. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There you see the commitment of, of Peter here. Um, he loves Jesus. Um, his objection in verse 8 is well intended. And I think probably what's going on in Peter's mind is he's jealous for the dignity of Christ, isn't he? He's, de he's jealous for the dignity of Jesus. This is beneath you, Lord. You have no business doing this. You're going to wash my feet? We could put it another way. Peter is jealous for the Glory of Jesus, isn't he? Are you following me? Now, the problem here is, one of the problems is, in Peter's view of Jesus' glory, there's no room for this kind of service. Does that make sense? In his view, in his estimation, of Jesus' glory. There's no place for washing feet. 
And that brings us to, there's actually a really serious problem with Peter's objection. You know, if you look at it again, verse 8, what's he say? You shall never wash my feet. When I read this again, tell me if you don't hear the words, thou shalt not. Let me read it again. You shall never wash my feet. Thou shalt not. Do you hear that? And then some of them say, yeah, that sounds like something, doesn't it? Like the Ten Commandments, where we get the thou shalt nots, or the case law of the Old Testament, thou shalt not law, thou shalt not law. And, and who, who is the only one who has really the right to say that? It's the lawgiver. And what's Peter doing? He's given Jesus a thou shalt not. You shall never wash my feet. And this brings up something that's I think it's quite scary. Is that hidden underneath a well-intended and loving commitment to Jesus' glory can be excessive human pride. Do you see it? I mean, while being lovingly, in my notes I have a note here, while being lovingly committed to Jesus' glory, Peter is declaring to Jesus a thou shalt not. Well, what's being exposed here is pride, and that brings us to the point I want to make, and it's the, we're going to call it the pride struggle. The pride struggle. And there's two, there's two areas where we have this struggle, before conversion and after conversion. Before conversion and after conversion. You like that? It's kind of like in-season and out-of-season, isn't it? When do we have this pride struggle? Before conversion and after conversion. Other than that, you're good to go, right? Until you're glorified. Then we won't have this problem. We have this problem before conversion and after conversion. We'll use this, we'll call before conversion the struggle of faith. You know, the struggle of faith. I've been working on my Spanish, you know, I'm really want to, I got to learn how to speak Spanish. I just have to do it. And it's easy to get lazy right now. And, but, you know, if I was, if I was speaking to m some of my Hispanic friends, I would say something like, how would it go? Uh, la, la lucha, la lucha par, um, oh goodness, la lucha par la fe. La lucha par la fe. That would be the struggle for faith, right? Does that sound right? We have a Spanish speaker with us this morning uh, who's supposed to be teaching me this stuff, and he is. He's working on it. Uh, not to put uh, Dylan on the spot, but uh, la, la lucha par la fe, that would work, wouldn't it? Yeah, he says yes. Thank you for saying yes. <laughs> After the service, he's going to like, that's not right. <laughs> Just giving our minds a little break here, but let's get back to the struggle of faith. A number of years ago, maybe this illustration will, will help. A number of years ago, this has been, I was thinking about this yesterday, how long ago this was. This is probably around 2004, 2005. I remember working with a father and a son together, and they, they were kind of curious, and I was talking to them about the existence of God, reaching out to them, um, and, and sharing with them, and trying to, to, to reason with them that God certainly exists. And, and, you know, they, they came to the point where they're like, all right, you're right. I mean, they haven't, I mean, it's very clear, certainly God exists. And from there, we're talking about Jesus and the claims that Jesus makes, 
on our life. And I'd say probably a year into this thing, the father comes to me. It was around Christmas time. He comes to me, and he's all excited, and he goes, listen, one of these days, one of these days I'm going to get there, and it's going to be really wonderful, and you're going to see it. Now, what did he mean by that? Did he mean that one of these days the Lord's going to open up his heart and he's going to see? Or what is he talking about? He's talking about what he was saying is one of these days I'm going to find it within my own strength to climb this ladder you're talking about. I'm going to climb this ladder, and when I climb this ladder, you're going to see it, and it's going to be wonderful. This is a good, this is a really good uh, illustration of the struggle of of faith, the, the pride, the, how pride gets in the way of the struggle of faith. You know, it, the pride is is actually in view in a several different places in this. First of all, in ability, you know, in our fallenness and in our fallen pride, we think to ourselves and we reason to ourselves that we have within ourselves the ability to, to climb such a ladder. That one of these days, it's not today, I recognize I can't do it today, but there's hope for tomorrow that I'm going to find within myself the strength to be able to climb this ladder. I'm going to overcome my vices. I'm going to overcome um, all of these obstacles. I'm going to overcome unbelief. I'm going to overcome sin in my life. I'm going to overcome all these things, and I'm going to climb the ladder. And the Scriptures say that's humanly impossible because we're chained to these things. We're bound to these things. The word that is used is we're enslaved to these things. We can't do this. And what is assumed in this is that we have understanding. There's a pride in understanding here. And listen to this one really closely. A pride in understanding. If we're going to climb this ladder, then in order to climb this ladder... we're going to have to be able to have enough understanding about the demands that God's holiness makes upon us, the demands that God's righteousness places upon us, the demands of God's purity that is placed upon us. Otherwise, how are we going to know which direction to go? You follow me there? Fallen and fallen... Creatures, fallen human beings, do not have a sense of this demand. How do we know that? Well, listen to us talk in our fallenness before conversion. We reason and say things like this. I know I'm not perfect, but I think that like a lot of the good stuff that I do is going to outweigh the bad stuff that I do. How common do you think that reasoning is? And you can see from that reasoning that there is absolutely no handle whatsoever on the demands that God's righteousness is placing upon us. If we can think, think about how proud we have to be of our good deeds, to think that they are so good that they can atone for our bad ones. And this this is displaying a crass ignorance of the demands that God's righteousness is making on us. And it is not until we begin to come to understand at least a little bit of the demands that God's righteousness places on us before we reach any level of conviction that we're sinners and we need saved. You follow me? This is the struggle of faith. But really, at the end of the day, let's not throw this one out. It's, there's pride in saving face. You know what I mean by saving face? Well, I'm not really that bad, am I? 
We don't want to believe that we're that bad. You can understand that. We don't want to believe that we're that bad. So what do we do? We modify repentance. Repentance is not casting ourselves down upon uh, the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. No, we modify it a little bit. We put ourselves on some kind of do-it-yourself program so that we can modify that repentance in order to ease ourselves. So this is, does this make sense? This is the pride and struggle, if you will, of faith. But there's also a struggle afterwards of, we'll call this a struggle of sanctification. Sanctification. Again, um, Dylan, not to put you on the spot, that would go something like uh, la lucha, right? La lucha would be the struggle. La lucha par santificación. Is that how it's pronounced? Santificación. Santificación par. Thank you for letting me do this because it's helpful. Um, it's really helpful to learn. And I really, have, I really hope that one of these days we're going to have Hispanic um, brothers and sisters in here with us. It will be wonderful. I would be wonderful to be able to have to do this. Uh, but anyway, the struggle of sanctification. Um, there's a tendency, ever, even after we become believers, to try to avoid Christ's condescension. Now, that sounds really abstract. Let's flesh that out a little bit. Um, it's where we'll reason, you know. Peter, what's Peter say? Peter says, you shall never wash my feet, Lord, right? That's what Peter says. Peter does not want to let... Jesus do this for him. He does not want to let Jesus. Okay, is, he, is, is, is this well-intended? Yes, on the surface. Does, Jesus, does Peter love Jesus? Yes, he loves Jesus. Is Peter concerned about Jesus' dignity? Yes. But all of that having been said, Peter really is uncomfortable with Jesus doing this, isn't he? And so are we, even after we come to faith. When, how is this proven? When you're wrestling with your vices. How often do we want to try to do that ourselves? Rather than really, merc- rather than really humbling ourselves before the Lord and saying, Lord, you've, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. I know I have to work with you in it, but you, you have to do this. How often do you catch yourself? Saying something like, Lord, I can't let you do this. Uh, let me take care of it, and then, then you won't have to. We won't say it in those kind of words. We'll say it like this. I got this, Lord. I got this. Or maybe we don't say anything at all. That's just what's in, that's just what's in the subconsciousness. But our actions betray us, don't they? Our actions betray us. We're, we're trying to do it ourselves. I got these filthy feet. I'm going to clean them myself. I can't let you do it, Lord. So you see the struggle there. And that brings us to the next lesson. We get a second. Jesus uses, as he always did so skillfully and powerfully, he uses Peter's objection in order to give us a second lesson. Jesus, and we looked at this last week. Jesus says, listen, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And we used that last week to see that this whole thing is pointing to the cross, isn't it? That's what we said last week. This whole thing is pointing to the cross. Where we wash as Jesus takes our place and suffers in our stead. He takes our sins away. And Jesus says, listen, if you're not washed, 
You have no share with me, or you have no, some of your translations may say no part with me, translating the Greek word meros. And uh, meros is um, this idea of uh, uh, not an inheritance, but having a stake, if you will, having a share, having a part with Jesus. Um, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that in Christ we have a couple of blessings, right, in the heavenly places. Say no, Jim's going no. It's we have every, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the share that we have in Jesus. And Jesus says, "Listen, unless I wash you, you have no share with me, Peter." And Peter, of course, hears this: "No share with you, no maros with you." Well, he doesn't want anything to do with that. He certainly wants to have a share with Jesus, and that's what's leading him to say in verse 9, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's still giving orders. You notice that? Did you catch that? He's still saying no, Lord. Think about your prayer life. Has your prayer life ever, when it's looked at closely, has it ever had a tendency to give orders to God? Where we're, we, you know, we, we try to be tactfully with it, but we're, we're telling God what he should do about a certain situation. Have you ever done that in your prayers? There's a struggle here. Um, there's, there's certainly a, a struggle here. And Peter's, Peter's objection is not only telling the Lord what to do, but we, it reveals a misunderstanding. I mean, first of all, he's still reluctant to let Jesus just wash his feet. You want to wash my hands? You want to wash my head? Well, wash all of me then. But it seems to be a misunderstanding where, you know, Jesus... Jesus' act here in the upper room is symbolic. It's not accomplishing the washing. It's pointing to the washing. It's important that we sort that out. No external right can cleanse us of our sin. Does that make sense? I mean, if that was the case, then we would just get busy with this external right, and it'd be like a vaccine, and we'd just get around to everybody, and everybody would be okay, Right? At least we get around to most everybody and everybody would be all right. But that's not what's going. No external right can take away sin. And this brings us to the next lesson. Notice if you look at verse 10 with me, Jesus says to Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. Now look at that again. Jesus says the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Now, before we go any further, I want to point something out, especially for Shine and later down the road for um, uh, Adeline and Isaac. If you look there at verse 10, after the phrase, except for his feet, look with me there. What do you see after feet? What's there? There's a little footnote. And what's at the bottom of the page? It says, except some manuscripts omit except for his feet. Now, why do I want to point this out? Well, good. Get, yeah, get it out, Isaac. Get it out and look at it. 
Um, what page number is it? Anybody using a, using a church Bible? What is it? 900, page 900, Isaac. I want you to see this, Isaac. I want you all to see this. There's a footnote there. And the footnote is pointing to the fact that some manuscripts omit except for his feet. And my point is, there's a textual variant, which is what we call a textual variant. Now, you might say, what's a textual variant? A textual variant is when we have a number of manuscripts gathered together and they, and, and they say something different. And the reason I'm pointing this out to you is because when you're in university or in college here one of these days, you may come across a professor that likes to make sport of debunking people's faith. They're, they're out there. There's some out there that like to do it. And if you're not prepared for it, it can be quite crushing. And I, I, first of all, anybody that's going to try to talk you out of your faith, I want you to recognize where their voice is uh, obviously coming from in, in the start. In Genesis 3, we have this evil one slithering into the garden, and he says, did God really say? Did God really say? You shall not eat any of the trees in the garden. And what I want you to remember, one thing I want you to remember is here is this intruder, this imposter, who's coming in and he's talking to you like he's your friend and he's known you forever, but you don't know who he is. And that'll be this instructor. Maybe you have known him for an hour in class, or maybe you've known him for two or three hours in class, and all of a sudden he's going to convince you that he has. He, he loves you better than your parents love you. He loves you better than your pastor loved you. And he's going to set you straight. You need to recognize that voice. That's the voice of Genesis 3. This guy doesn't know you. It's the first class he's ever had with you. He's not spent hours praying for you like your parents have. He's not spent hours praying for you like your pastor has. And he's trying to crush your faith by making a statement that's simply not true. It's just not true. And he's counting on the fact that no one has ever told you any different, and he's going to make sport of you. Now, that, generally speaking, those guys won't debate somebody that knows anything about it. They won't debate someone who's in the know, but they like to make sport out of those who don't. And you need to be prepared for this. Hopefully, you'll never encounter anybody like this, but you might. And when he says, listen, the Bible's full of errors. And there's lots of stuff that the church doesn't want you to see because there's all these manuscripts and they're all different from one another. And you can say, well, wait a second. My Bible has footnotes about that kind of thing. And that's why I want to point it out to you. Look at verse 10. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Footnote. Bottom of page, some manuscripts omit except for his feet. Nothing being hidden about this. First of all, when you go through the Bible and you look at all of these footnotes, these footnotes are never going to um, affect the simple message of the gospel. These are usually, some of them, I don't want to say that none of them are significant. Some of them are significant, and I'm not going to take you through, I'm not going to trouble everybody to go, to, to, to take you through one version and take you through another version. We don't have time for that. But what I definitely want you to see is that some manuscripts do not have this phrase except for his feet. We'll get a slightly different interpretation whether we take that phrase or we don't take that phrase. But here's the point that I want to make. It's not affecting salvation. It's not affecting the person of Jesus. It's not affecting the Trinity. It's not affecting any of the cardinal doctrines of Christianity. And that's what we need to have firmly in our heads. Does that make sense? 
I don't mean to put you three on the spot here, but this is a message that we need, especially as the, the, the days are approaching where you may find yourself with someone like this. And again, if you guys want in the hallway afterwards, we could talk about with this phrase is in here or this phrase isn't in here. But we're going to go with the fact that this phrase is in here, except for his feet. You can take it either way, but I think the evidence is at least the English, transla- the English standard translators believe that the evidence is in favor that the phrase is there. I think there's good arguments that the phrase is there. And if the phrase is there, what is Jesus saying? He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Let's real quick. I think we can do this fast. Take except for his feet out. The one who is bathed does not need to wash, but is completely clean. Well, what's Jesus saying then? He's saying, listen, the one who's put their faith and their trust in me and what I've done on the cross in their place is clean. He's pointing to a once-for-all event that takes place that renders you clean. It's important that we hold on to this because the moment that you put your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus and you're trusting in what he has done on the cross and what you're saying in your heart is what Jesus has done on the cross is sufficient. Jesus says it is finished. And by virtue of his resurrection, this proves everything is true. What that means is the moment I put my faith and my trust in Christ Jesus, I have been justified. I have been proclaimed just because of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, I have had a bath and I am clean. If we put the phrase in, it doesn't change that point whatsoever. If we put the phrase back in, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Then what is Jesus saying? Well, let's put ourselves in that culture. And let's, let's, let's say it's Friday morning, and tonight there's a major event down in the town square that everybody wants to be at. So we go out in the fields, we labor all day, we come in, we get a bath, we get cleaned up, we put our sandals on, and we wade through those dusty streets on the way to this event. What does our feet look like when we get there? It's going to be nasty. Now, when we get there, do we we need to take an entire bath all over again? Jesus is using this social construct to make a great point. No, he says you don't need to bath again. You only need to wash your feet. How often does the evil one and our, the world, the flesh, and the devil accuse us. Some nights, I don't know if, if you, may, I hope I'm not the only one who's, who's um, had this. Some days are so bad at night when you're reviewing the day and you're, you're confessing your sins and, and you, you just think to yourself, how could I have fallen into all of this all over again? And it can sometimes lead you to believe that, boy, I just need a complete bath all over again. And what Jesus is saying, listen, You're already clean. You only need to wash your feet. Let me put this still another way that I think is going to drive the point home. The moment you put your faith and your trust in Christ, you're declared righteous for the righteousness of Christ. You're brought in to the family of God. You're now a son and daughter of God. The wrath of God used to be upon you, but now the fatherly pleasure of God is upon you. And here is the difference. The difference is prior to putting your faith and trust in God, 
the wrath of God was upon you. But since you've put your faith and trust in God, now your sins bring the fatherly displeasure upon you. Do you understand the difference between God's wrath and his fatherly displeasure? There's a huge difference. Parents, do your kids ever displease you? That's a no-brainer, isn't it? But do you ever stop loving them? You see the difference? The one who's bath, you don't need another bath. He, he is the object. You see, remember how I said this thing begins with love? He is the object of fatherly love. If you're in Christ, you are an object of God's fatherly love. And when we blow it, you are still an object of his fatherly love and his displeasure towards us. What is it? It's, it's, it's only designed and engineered to bring us on the way that we're supposed to go. What do we want for kids? We, 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 we just want the best for them, don't we? What does our father want for us? Well, of course he wants the very best for us. What this is saying, this is a fancy way of saying that there's a need for daily repentance. Not daily justification. There's a lot of people that see this as a, a need for daily justification that you just fall away and you've fallen away. And if you're not re-justified, then... Do you understand what I'm saying? So... We have an example to follow, and then we'll wrap this up. If you look at verses 12 through 14, Jesus says, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me Lord and teacher, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You know, I've been waiting to bring this in. You know, the elephant that's in the room. There's an elephant in the room. You know what I mean by the expression? I mean... Um, I'm assuming the only ones in the room are Jesus and his 12 disciples. So there's 13 people in the room. Now let's think about this for a minute. 13 people enter a room with these filthy feet. And there's a pitcher of water. There's a basin. There's a towel. I mean, at some point, aren't they kind of looking at each other like, okay, um, who's going to do this? Not me. Um, no, not me. No one's say, probably saying anything. They're all just like, well, maybe one, maybe someone will get up and do this. But nobody's getting up to do it. And in fact, one of the reasons we read from Luke 22 this morning is because in the course of the events that are taking place in this night, they're arguing about who's the greatest, aren't they? That's why I chose to bring that verse in. Now, if we're all sitting around arguing about who's going to be the greatest, there isn't anybody going to go over there and grab that pitcher of water and pour it in that basin and put a towel around their waist. Now, is there? And that's the elephant that's in the room. Um, and what Jesus is saying, saying, well, you think this is beneath you. Obviously, you think this is beneath you. But if I, your Lord and Master, am willing to do this, I'm demonstrating that it's not beneath me. And if it's not beneath me, how can it possibly be beneath you? In fact, to the contrary, this is the kind of community that I'm creating you to be. This is the kind of community that Jesus is creating. 
the kind of community that wouldn't all just stare at that picture and ignore it. And if we find ourselves, of course, we, we, we're in a different culture, but the principles can be applied to our culture. You know, who's going to run the sweeper? Not me. Not me. Not me. The kind of, crea- the kind of um, community that Jesus is creating is a community where, listen, we're all willing to do this for one another. In fact, unhesitatingly, we're willing to do this for one another. And in fact, we could even go farther. We desire to do this for one another. You follow me? <coughs> I don't think it's COVID. I don't think it's COVID. I mean, I don't mean to offend nobody, but I don't think it's COVID. <clears throat> just a joke to lighten it up just a little bit. John 13, 15 to 16, Jesus says, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. The community that Jesus creates is a community that's cleansed by the blood of Christ. We're clean because we've placed our faith and our trust in Jesus only by his grace. So we're clean. But we're also unhesitatingly willing to do the low, to perform the lowliest of tasks for one another. More than willing, desirous to do these things. Now let's think about how, how contrary that is to a community that labors long and strong to get all of their theology right, to get every theological I dotted and every theological D crossed, but is unwilling to stoop down and do anything for one another. Those are two different communities, aren't they? What attracts the world to a congregation is the former, this willingness to stoop down and you know, I don't want to be gross. Um, this is the best. This is the be- this is one of the best illustrations, though. And I don't mean to be. I don't want to be like vulgar. I, I don't really like it when pastors get vulgar and and use vulgarity in the pulpit. But um, a number of years ago, when I was getting my carpal tunnel surgery done, um, I I asked about getting both hands done at once. That way, you know, it's over with. Everything's done. And surgeon, I mean, she, she says, listen, I won't do both hands at once. Uh, I just won't do both hands at once. I'm like, really? I mean, I'm thinking I'm the customer. I'm like, will you do both hands at once and get it over with? And the vulgar part is she says, listen, no one is going to wipe your rear end. No one loves, she's what she said to me, no one loves you enough to wipe your rear end. And immediately I thought to myself, how sad, you know? I mean, I'm not judging her. And I don't mean to be vulgar. But we shouldn't hesitate to even do that for one another. No hesitation. Does that make sense? Please forgive me for being vulgar. But it's the very best illustration that I can think of. Immediately in the back of my mind, I thought, boy, our household's so much different than that. I hope that you don't live in a household that's not willing to do that for one another. And I was thankful that I don't live in a household that's unwilling to do that. You see the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, 
Thank you, Father, that you're creating a community that though the world may reject you and the world may cast stones at you, it's still a, it's still a community and an atmosphere that we all want to belong to. Oh, Father, work your grace into Tri-State Community Church that, Lord, we would be we would be so transformed that we're willing to do the lowliest of tasks for one another. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you work incrementally or however you like, whatever you desire, Lord, that you work this grace in the Tri-State Community Church. Father, we want to be everything that you're calling us to be. We are desirous to be faithful. And help us, oh, Father, in the struggle of faith and in the struggle of sanctification, Father. Keep us, oh, Father, from shouting orders at you. Keep us, oh, Father, and soften our hearts, Father, that we would not be proud and say, Lord, I can't let you do this for me. Or to be obstinate in the process of growing in Christ and in the process of sanctification where we would say, you know, Lord, um, I got this. Um, uh, I, I, I got this. I, I, can, I can cover this. How, how quickly we fail, Father. Peter thought he could go to Jerusalem and die with you, and within hours he's denying you three times. Oh, Father, that will always be the case with us, Lord. We will do the same thing. We'll follow in his footsteps. We will scatter unless we have your, unless we have your strength, unless we have your grace. Teach us, O oh Lord, daily. Teach us, O oh Lord, daily to humble ourselves and cast ourselves upon your mercy, being willing to let you do these things for us. In Jesus' name, amen.